Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. We are going to talk today about the Caring Well Initiative in the Southern Baptist Convention. The reason for that is because yesterday I went through an email, um, actually I think it was a letter that Russell Moore had put out there last year to, I think it was trustees at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And this hasn't been public information until very recently. Uh, probably on purpose, it was made, I mean, obviously someone on purpose made it public information, but I'm thinking it probably, it, who knows if Russell Moore was even um, uh, one of the ones approving this publication, but uh, I I don't know. It, it certainly has, um, as I said yesterday, a political utility. It basically characterizes those who chased Russell Moore out of the convention, those really mean-spirited people as being those in favor somehow of sexual abuse and somehow um, or wanting to cover for that. And then they're also racists, ex- white nationalists, uh, supremacists, etc. That That's that's the, the spin, at least, uh, that Russell Moore put on it. And some of it was just so ridiculous. I pointed that out yesterday. But one of the things he talked about was the Caring Well Initiative and how the Caring Well Initiative was one of the things that... Um, uh, Mike Stone and the executive board had a problem with him for. And uh, so they, they wanted to investigate him to see if there was a connection between churches leaving the Southern Baptist Convention and what he was doing. And the Caring Well Initiative was just, I think it might have been one of the first things he brought up. And it was one of the major points that he made. And so I thought, you know what, let's talk about the Caring Well Initiative a little bit. Because um, I knew a little bit about it, but uh, today I went on their website and I started looking into what the Caring Well Initiative uh, is all about, and I definitely have some thoughts for you, and um, I think they'll be helpful and hopefully enlightening. Uh, a lot of things leaking though right now. I, I figured I should at least mention, just because of the news cycle we're in, Anthony Fauci's uh, emails are out there, at least the ones from early last year, and you can go and you can search them. I actually did that for like five minutes just to see what would come up. And uh, you, I mean, some of the things that I've seen um, that have gotten a lot of attention are the letter or the email between him and Mark Zuckerberg, a, a string of emails uh, that seem to indicate that Mark Zuckerberg uh, was um, in, in cahoots with Fauci for uh, cracking down, banning, uh, getting rid of. Uh, and, and the same thing for uh, Twitter. There's some questions there. There wasn't an email with Twitter, but it was... Uh, someone had posted a Zero Hedge article claiming that the Wuhan uh, virus came from a lab in Wuhan. And of course, I think that was between um, the, it was between Anthony Fauci and then the person who sent it to him though was, oh, I forget the name now. Uh, I want to say it was the former head of the Human Genome Project. Uh, and I the name is escaping me for some odd reason. That's not what I was going to talk about today though. So I have an excuse for forgetting that name. But anyway, uh, there, there was some question about the, the correlation of that coming to Fauci and the next day Zero Hedge being banned on Twitter and then, of course, Facebook. And you have um, uh, Anthony Fauci as well talking about masks and how, you know what, they don't really work, especially the ones you buy at the store. They just don't really accomplish much and, uh, you know, not really a big deal. I wouldn't wear them in like February of last year. So uh, interesting stuff, uh, to say the least. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I wonder, though, why it was leaked. And I have, maybe this is my own suspicion. Um, I don't think it is likely that the letter uh, from Russell Moore uh, was leaked on accident. I think that that was put out there uh, probably by someone high up at the ERLC, if not Russell Moore himself, 
Uh, probably not Russell Moore himself, though. He probably, if, if he was in favor, he'd probably have someone else do it. But uh, perhaps with his approval, uh, it could have been put out there. I, I don't really, I suspect that. I'll, I'll just say based on, I guess, past behavior and uh, how close we are to the Southern Baptist Convention and just the way some of these things work. I mean, it, it, there's a political utility to that. It You smear the people who supposedly chased Russell Moore out of the convention as being those who are sexual abusers or, or at least wanting to cover for sexual abuse, I should say, and racists. Basically, that's the uh, political utility of that particular piece of mail. Um as far as the Anthony Fauci emails, I just can't, I, I don't know. I really don't know why. I mean, I, I mean, it was, a. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Maybe you should put it in the comments if you have a thought on this. Why would that be leaked? It's redacted. Obviously, there's certain things you can't see, like the Mark Zuckerberg email was very redacted. But what is it that, why, why would these be out there? Uh, why would this not be, um, I mean, it, it's just, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Uh, I'm wondering if there's something else that's going on that this is a distraction from. I, I really don't know, but it's just odd to me uh, because of how terrible it makes Fauci look. Uh, let's um, let's go through some of the Caring Well stuff, though, here, uh, which is the point of today's program. Some of you may have heard of this initiative. I want to show you, actually, let's do it this way. Uh, we're going to start here. Let me show you what J.D. Greer, the now at least, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, has to say about the Caring Well Initiative, uh, give you a little bit of a background of what it is. Is your church doing all that it can to be safe for survivors and safe from abuse? We've got good news. You don't have to face this challenge on your own. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and the SBC's Sexual Abuse Advisory Group are partnering together to present the Caring Well Challenge. It's a free initiative designed to walk with church leaders step-by-step towards becoming a church that is safe for survivors and safe from abuse. The Caring Well Challenge provides your church with a pathway to start engaging the problem of abuse, whatever your background. I wanna encourage your church to commit to taking the eight-step challenge over the next year. All right, let me just show you. Here's the eight-step challenge. You can click on it, and it'll take you through. So if you go, uh, this is at caringwell.com. There's little videos and stuff. So here's the commit. That's just kind of the intro. Okay, now uh, more stuff. You can download the How to Build a Caring Well team um, and talks about how if you have, like, experienced abuse, um, those who have experienced abuse would be good on your team, uh, maybe some educators, law enforcement, etc. Launch it, uh, launch your Caring Well challenge, um, video announcement from Russell Moore. There's all, I mean, there's just all sorts of resources here for your church, the bulletin inserts, and you just go through and there's just a lot of stuff. Here's the, here's the main chunk of stuff here, uh, the train part. This is, I'd say, the um, most important part. And you can click on this link, and it'll take you to all the videos uh, pretty much here. And I'm going to talk about these videos. I haven't watched all of them in their entirety. That would take a long, long time. Uh, I've gone through a a bunch of them just to get the gist of them, though, like starting them, seeing what the topic is about. Um, I've watched hunks of, of certain ones, but I, I poked around to, for lack of a better term, just to figure out what is this all about? And, uh, pretty confident. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm sure that I've figured it out. 
So um, there's not some of the, I'm not going to say all this stuff here is like bad or anything like that. I think there's an assumption though. Here's the problem. There's an assumption behind all of this that is kind of dangerous. And that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit. But anyway, you go through, there's uh, more and more steps. And at one of these steps, I don't remember which one it is, we're going to get to churchcares.com. If you want more, you read more at Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abuse Curriculum. And so it's a book that they've uh, Caring Well has put out there, the ERLC. Now, this was this was something Russell Moore was very much um, about, the Caring Well Initiative. And so he thinks that this is one of the reasons, I guess, he was uh, under investigation. The, this is why some people didn't like him, was because he was against sexual abuse, and he was part of the Caring Well Initiative. And um, I here's the thing. Does Russell Moore really know why people, conservatives, politically and theolo- theologically had an issue with him. I think he kind of does. I think, I, I mean, unless you're, he has to be so self-deceived not to know. It has nothing to do with, oh, you know, he's against sexual abuse. Oh, he's against racism. As if the people that are critiquing him are for those things. That's absolutely ridiculous. No one is. Um, that's critique. That's critiquing Russell Moore in the Southern Baptist Convention in any serious way, at least. And so, he has to kind of straw man and paint the other side as, as these horrible people that uh, that's who they are. They're these mean monsters. But it's it does take in, when you, you put that narrative out there, it, some ignorant people are taken in by that. They think, wow, there's really are some horrible, like sec- people want, that want to cover for sexual abuse and uh, that are racist running around controlling the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and it's such a problem. And, and I, think, um, I think most people at the higher levels, they know that's not true. They know that that's ridiculous. But it's, there are enough ignorant people out there who, um, and, and even if they're not ignorant, they pretend to be to, uh, because this is an advantageous, advantageous narrative for them that they go ahead and they push the narrative. So I want to uh, pretend someone's ignorant out there that has, doesn't understand the working issues, thinks it's all... Uh, the people that are cr- critical of caring well are just there for sexual abuse, or they want to cover for people that uh, are um, uh, doing sexual abuse. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm going to articulate the issue that some people that are conservative have with caring well. And there may be more issues, but here's the main one. And this is the one that I have with caring well as well. And it really does come back to standpoint epistemology. If you uh, go back, if you don't know what that is, watch the video I did with Bill Roach on standpoint epistemology. I'm going to put out some more resources on it uh, moving forward so we know how to identify it better. But that video that I did with Bill Roach, I think was the first one we did. And it's just, you'll get it by the end of that video. I think Bill Roach explains it very well. Uh, But I'm going to explain it, I guess, (laughs) in my way. Uh, Standpoint epistemology um, I, I see it as actually an extension of Karl Marx's class consciousness in a way that there were, the working class was able to identify problems that uh, the upper class could not see because of their experience of oppression. And of course, uh, we have Foucault and Derrida and postmodern thinkers, especially from the French postmodernist school. And we have critical theorists from Germany now who have um, certainly built upon uh, those ideas. And, and now you have critical race theorists. So we, we've come a long way. Uh, in, in a sense, and in, in intersectionality also. But I, I, I trace it back to kind of that. Now, you could even trace it back farther. I mean, you could go to Immanuel Kant and, and see some of the ideas there. Um, you, could, you could even probably go to Hegel in some ways. But I, I think of Marx, I think of class consciousness. 
Now, the way that it works today, obviously, it doesn't operate, simply put, based on class. Um, it operates based on other external factors like your racial identity, your gender, sexual orientation, uh, and it could be a lot of other things as well. Your, uh, your experience, as far as being a victim uh, in some way, ends up then, I mean, it could be you have a gluten allergy. I mean, it, it somehow contributes to you having some kind of an advantage in knowledge about some area because of a victim experience or an oppressed experience uh, or being in the minority culture, that kind of thing. And so it, it is based on uh, experience at the end of the day. And those who are not, uh, who do not share your um, social location, that's really what it's all based on, the experience attached to your social location, uh, they do not have the insights you have, which is why someone like a white straight male Christian needs to sit down and listen and shut up when it comes to the issues plaguing women or plaguing minorities, because they're just not able to understand because they are uh, in the oppressive class or the majority culture, etc. According, those are the terms that are often used. And so um, standpoint epistemology gives an advantage in knowledge, in understanding, in wisdom, in the ability to uh, meet challenges and come up with solutions for oppression to those that have some kind of a victim, uh, um, victimology of some kind. Now, when you insert intersectionality into that, um, there are some people would say that someone who has multiple identities of victimhood may even be uh, on some issues, at least uh, more qualified to speak because of their victim status. Now, I believe and we we went through this in the video, I believe uh, that I did with Bill Roach. This is completely antithetical to biblical teaching. Uh, it actually destroys the clarity of revelation and, and just um, the very idea of revelation itself, that God communicates to man in such a way that man can know what God is communicating is just absolutely destroyed and wrecked by this uh, idea because it, it's actually kind of a neo-Gnosticism. Uh, you have someone who is um, oppressed in a situation or, or they have a standpoint where they can understand that revelation perhaps better than someone who doesn't have that uh, social location that is associated with oppression. So there may be a barrier for them in understanding even the word of God and understanding reality itself, but that would include the revelation from God. That would include um, both natural and special revelation. And this is where I think seminary um, presidents and um, and popular Christian uh, speakers want to diversify their libraries and uh, make sure they're giving up power to hire minorities and these kinds of things because uh, have a global curriculum as Matt Hall and Walter Strickland want because you see um, if you're a white straight male uh, you, you can't understand certain things and you need these other perspectives to be able to understand issues. Uh, Danny Carroll is an example of a professor from Wheaton who has gone around for like the last seven years or so talking about how um, Hispanics have a better understanding of what the Bible says about immigration because of their experience in being immigrants. And, and so this kind of thing is just, it, it's in the water. We breathe it in every day. It's, it's out there. One of the ways it's manifested itself is in this whole um, Me Too Believe Women uh, movement uh, that someone who claims to have a, a oppression like Christine um, Ford, who accused uh, Brent Kavanaugh uh, of, um, of, of, I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase some of these things if you have kids in the car. 
uh, of, of doing some not so nice things. Uh, <laughs> she um, was to be believed. In fact, there was a dating app that put uh, an ad, I think it was in the New York Times, that said believe women. She was to be believed just because of her status as a woman, which is a minority uh, essentially, and even though they're not in the, when it comes to gender, but they're, they don't have power is the point. Uh, they're, um, uh, they're oppressed in some way because of their gender. Uh, their social location is one of disadvantage. And this, if you start to think that someone is supposed to be believed or trusted just because of their gender or some external factor, then when you apply that to like biblical interpretation, uh, it's no longer the man of God who is um, equipped for every good work. It's no longer, uh, you know, all the wisdom principles from Proverbs that we're supposed to be looking for to uh, as, as a way to um, gauge whether someone is wise or not. It's not. Um, it, it's not the approved workman who does not need to be ashamed. It's not. It's not the those kinds of uh, of metrics which are based on hard work and understanding, uh, being a Berean. Uh, it's now based more on, there's a shift, and it's not to say that study isn't important, but there's a shift, there's an advantage given to someone because of some external factor. And you just don't see that in scripture. You don't see, hey, the Jews or the Gentiles or any other ethnic group have some kind of an advantage uh, simply because of the fact that uh, they are from some kind of a social location. Sure, the Jews have um, a heritage and all sorts of uh, specific things God had revelation God has had given them that was unique to them, but that wasn't a social location. That wasn't uh, because of their some level of oppression or something that they were more um, uh, qualified to speak to a certain issue. Uh, so hopefully th that gives you a basic sketch of what standpoint epistemology is and just how it functions. I see caring well as paralleling the Me Too movement and the Believe Women um, uh, phrase that was so popular, that catchphrase. And I want to go through why I believe this and why I think people actually had a problem and still have a problem with the Caring Well Initiative, because it has nothing to do with caring about victims, survivors, etc. Uh, everyone and every pastor certainly should care for those people. And I, there's no reason to believe that the people critiquing Caring Well don't care for those people. It's just the way Caring Well is approaching it and the assumptions Caring Well is bringing to it because Caring Well is bringing assumptions consistent with standpoint theory. So let's, uh, let, me, let me go through some of this uh, with you. Um, in the Southern Baptist Convention, the Caring Well Initiative applies a mild version of, of standpoint epistemology to the issue of sexual abuse. According to then president of the convention, J.D. Greer, now he's still the president, um, but at the time that this, I think it was 2019, the purpose of caring well was to help churches engage the problem of abuse. However, most of the speakers for the training material had little to qualify them except for the fact that they experienced abuse. And there you, you have it already. This is where you should start. Your, the, the red flag should be going up. Wait a minute. What qualifies someone to speak about a topic? Um, if the word of God is, and this is the assumption behind a Christian ministry approaching this topic, the word of God has spoken, it's given um, everything needed to make the man of God complete, to understand the issue of sexual abuse uh, and how to um, approach it in the church would be one of those categories. So you, already, you have the word of God, right? You have um, people with wisdom in applying the word of God, but most of the speakers, I'm going to repeat it, for the training material had little to qualify them as far as understanding, applying the word of God, except 
what they did have was the fact that they experienced abuse. And, um, and this is true if you just go look at the videos, how many of them are survivor stories. Uh, even contributors who did possess expertise took a posture of saying, let's hear from victims' experience before sharing their knowledge. Uh, of the 20 main speakers providing training, only four were publicly verifiable members of the clergy and only one, a counseling pastor from J.D. Greer's church, spoke in his capacity as a pastor. Greer taught that if church leaders were not first to rush to defend abuse survivors, they were, quote, betraying the name of Christ and the gospel. So the emphasis was not on pastors with experience, rightly dividing the word of God, knowing how to apply it to situations. It wasn't centered on the word. It was centered on the experience of victims. And that was what qualified and gave authority uh, to the Caring Well Initiative and to, to um, this uh, training that they're giving to churches. Now, um, the Caring Well Initiative did not platform any male victims in their main teachings. I thought that was interesting. There, I don't know if they could, couldn't find them. I'm sure they existed. But kind of like the Me Too movement, kind of like Believe Women, uh, it, was, it was all female uh, uh, victims, male abusers. And it, it definitely, in my mind, paralleled the same kind of thinking behind the Me Too movement's Believe Women slogan. Women who experienced sexual abuse were more qualified to advise pastors and churches on the topic of sexual abuse than were pastors who rightly understood and applied scripture's teaching on the subject. Not only was their voice necessary for solving sexual abuse, but their stories were generally accepted without affirming the importance of verification. And there was a book uh, that um, I had showed. Let's see if I can pull it up here. I might be able to do that. Uh, there's, let's see, if we go down here, we click on read more about becoming a church that cares well for the abused curriculum. So you click on it. And that is not, I don't think, where I was planning. Let's see, churchcares.com, I think, is the, yeah, that's it, Church Cares. Become a, becoming a church that cares well for the abused. And you can um, go and preview now. Uh, it's got lessons. It's got the book. Um, let's see here. I click on the book. I don't know why it says URL not found. I could see it earlier today. Let's see here. Let's try again here. Book. Download free PDF. So you click that, download free PDF. And let me give you, let me show you something. Here's, if you type in the word um, believe, let's see, we have 70 hits on the word believed. Let me, let me just read for you a few of them. Here's the first one. It's a dedication to victims who need to know they will be believed and cared for when they come forward. Here's the next one. Do I believe her? Do I confront him? Do I call the police? Here's the next one. Uh, I pray that those who confide in you will leave with more hope than when they came, feeling believed, validated, and protected. Um, they are unlikely to speak to you again. They may even retract or soften their own allegations in your response if your response indicates they are not safe and have not been believed. Here's number five. Uh, when a person voluntarily discloses to their pastor that they are being abused or have been abused, they feel terrified that you won't believe their story. This just goes on and on and on. Studies show that the abu abuse is traumatic, but disclosing abuse can be more traumatic when the victim isn't believed or blamed by those trusted to help. 
it's pretty extreme actually that's uh i mean that's that's i mean that really is a motivator for believing a victim if you think that it's going to be worse if you don't believe them than it was for the initial trauma they experienced um so anyway there's a lot about believing women in this book i don't think all 70 are specifically uh, about believing women believing uh survivors etc but this is uh, part of this is a big part of the book. It's a major element to to believe women. So, um, back to this um, little thing I wrote on the Caring Well Initiative when I was gathering uh, my thoughts. If I can pull it up, yep, I can. Um, <clears throat> women were to be believed. Uh, not only was their voice necessary but their stories were generally accepted without affirming the importance of verification. In the book, Becoming a Church, and this is one I just showed you, that cares well for the abused, Caring Well contributors provided additional training in which they emphasized the importance of believing victims. The book instructed pastors and ministry leaders to emphasize their belief in the victim's story and create a safe space where the victim felt believed. Leaders were to disregard innocence until proven guilty. This is literally in the book. It says this. Leaders are to disregard innocence until proven guilty, that principle, since it only applied in the legal realm, while instead practicing Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, that love believes all things. So instead of innocent until proven guilty, two or three witnesses, meeting a standard of proof, exercising discernment, um, a victim needs to be believed immediately. It's a reflexive thing. Reflexively believing victims is a top priority. And and if you don't do that, a victim may suffer more trauma from not being believed than from their actual abuse. So this is a serious issue, and this is how Caring Well wanted to deal with this issue. Um, and and that, this is not, I think, how Scripture deals with this issue. In the context of 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul was correcting the way Corinthian Christians pridefully misuse their spiritual gifts by contrasting their arrogant attitudes with a spirit of love. So if you read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it's kind of that's the same uh, theme there. It's talking about spiritual things, spiritual gifts, um, the problem that erupted when the eye was saying to the hand, and, or you know, body parts are telling each other that they're they're more worth worthy or less worthy. Um, and then you get to uh, 1 Corinthians, the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and it says, earnestly desire the greater gifts, but I show you a still more excellent way. And that could also be uh, translated, you know, this is what you're doing. You're earnestly desiring the greater gifts. Here's the more excellent way I'm going to show you. It's the way of love, 1 Corinthians 13. So you're using your gifts in a way that's unloving. And that's what, uh, that's the theme. And here's, here's the right attitude to have when you're using your spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, that's a love chapter. So this is where they go. They go to 1 Corinthians 13, 7, and it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Say, so, well, see, you got to believe all things. As so, so that would mean, logically speaking, you would have to believe the quote-unquote abuser as well, right? If the person that's the abuser in the story tells you that they didn't do it, I guess you have to believe them because love believes all things. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Of course, uh, it can't mean what they're making it mean. Paul was was not talking about that kind of a situation. What he was saying was that uh, the way that the Corinthian Christians were using their spiritual gifts was wrong, and they needed to exercise a, a kind of love to their fellow Christians in their use of gifts. He was not teaching that victims had the right to be believed simply because of their stated experience or gender. Instead, he described the kind of encouraging attitude Christians should have toward each other in using their spiritual gifts. As Puritan Matthew um, Henry stated, charity does, 
by no means destroy prudence, meaning love does not destroy wisdom. Paul himself did not immediately believe every details of an accusation just because it was made. And we have evidence of this uh, from scripture, and I'll show you that. Let's see if I can turn this back. So we're going to, if you're watching, now you can see, um, we're going to show you some scriptures here. Um, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, and we'll read for you. Here's NASB. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. So he heard an accusation, and he doesn't believe all of it. He believes it in part. He believes the gist of it. So he's not, he's using his past experience. He's using um, what he knows to be true about the Corinthians to judge the accusation that is being made. He's not just knee-jerk, you know, taking all of it and swallowing it down and saying he believes all of every detail of it. Um, you have principles like Proverbs 14, 15. It says, the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. So, the, I mean, this would be a direct contradiction if, you know, we're supposed to just believe everyone. Uh, no, that's what the naive people do. Where the sensible man considers his steps. Deuteronomy 19, of course, talks about you can't convict on the basis of one witness. You need two or three. You need the facts of the case must be established. Um, this is civil procedure. You have Matthew 18, 16, which then applies that in the ecclesiastical realm, the church realm, uh, says that, uh, but if he does not listen to you, take uh, two or more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. You even have in 1 Timothy 5, 19, um, this idea that you sh cannot receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. There's that same standard within the church. So um, it is not accurate for the Caring Well Initiative to say that, uh, that 1 Corinthians is teaching that you should just believe victims uh, because love believes all things. Actually, no. And actually, there's a lot of paraphrases. Let me see if I can find some of them here. Um, See, I'll go to the passage. There's a lot of paraphrases that I think actually convey this in a way that makes it uh, almost more understandable uh, to people. Let's see here. And I'm, I'll show you some of these actually. Let me switch back here. So if we go to some of the paraphrases, now these are paraphrases, these aren't translations, but they're trying to get the gist of the text to you to convey the meaning of it. Um, here's... Uh, let's see which one here. God's word translation is a paraphrase. Love never stops being patient, never stops believing, never stops hoping, never gives up. It's endurance. It's encouragement. International Standard Version. She, she meaning wisdom, bears, or our love, sorry, bears up under everything, believes the best in all. There is no limit to her hope and never will she fall. Kind of a good rhyme there too. Um, let's see what else uh, is here. Um, contemporary English version, love is always supported, loyal, hoping, and trusting. Amplified Bible, love bears all things, regardless of what comes. Believes all things, looking for the best in each one. Hopes all things, remaining steadfast during difficult times, and endures all things without weakening. And I think these are conveying the, the gist of what Paul's getting at here, which is that you, you have uh, encouragement and you have... You, you have faith in someone. That's what it's talking about. It's not saying you, you, you know, without any kind of assessment, you just believe anything someone tells you. Come off the street or, you know, in order to love them, you got to believe them. No, it, it's, it's saying that you, you believe in them, that you, you're, uh, you have faith in them. You hope the best for them. Um, you're, you're looking for the best in them. 
you're you're assuming the best. You're you're um, there's a positivity to it, and this is how the use of spiritual gifts should function within the church: assuming the best of people, not demeaning them or uh, you know being jealous of them because they have a different spiritual gift. That was the problem Paul was addressing, and if you get the context, it all follows. But caring well uh, didn't, and so they ended up with a mess here. So. Um, I, I like to go back to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6, which states, love rejoices with the truth. In the ecclesiastical realm, the civil realm, the personal realm, we don't just, ex- we, we don't have to, we're not required to just accept everything without any kind of discernment or wisdom. Now, I want to say this on the, on the flip side. I mean, if it's someone that comes to you and, and there's someone with a track record that you, you know them and you have no reason not to believe them and they seem trustworthy, then by all means, believe them. That's exercising some wisdom and investigate it, take it to the next step. Um, if it's someone that you don't know, but just attached to this is this idea of love, you, you well, you got to love them and they deserve love. And it's uh, this, this booklet that Karen Well put out actually says it's a need. It uses the word need. They need to be believed. Well, then you just kind of owe it to them to believe them. And that's what you want to get away from. And I think resting on that assumption is a standpoint epistemology that some kind of lived experience, some kind of maybe gender, um, those things qualify someone to talk about this issue and to be believed. And that's just not the case. That's not a biblical standard whatsoever. And that's the issue many people have with caring well. It has nothing to do with they're against abuse survivors. In fact, what they're trying to avoid when they're um, critiquing caring well is having new victims form. Victims because they were accused of something they didn't do and ERLC is saying that they need to be believed. Um, that's also, that's an, you're creating another kind of victim when you do that. So that is my critique of the Caring Well stuff. And I hope that was helpful for some of you. I know it gets confusing because they, they posture themselves as being so much on the side of the victim that you think, oh man, I don't want to be against the victim. But um, you're not against the victim. You just don't want to create another victim uh, by hearing a false accusation and accepting it. And so uh, there needs to be a grid of wisdom that you're putting these things through. And fortunately, the Bible gives us uh, some wisdom on that issue, uh, having uh, different lines of authentication, two or three witnesses. Um, and uh, and that, that's one of them. So anyway, um, hope that was helpful for you all. And uh, I, I just I hope those who may have been taken in by Russell Moore, I hope a few of them are watching this video and at least understanding, even if they disagree, understanding what the critique actually is. And that was my goal. So tomorrow we are leaving SBC stuff. Uh, You'll get to hear something different, something a little more hopeful, hopefully. Uh, And then we will talk more next week and have all, I don't know, we'll see what next week holds. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.